0: Welcome to Let's Get to Work, a podcast with stories of hope and inspiration for people experiencing blindness and vision loss, as well as those wanting to support us. Brought to you by the Employment Committee of the American Council of the Blind, a place where we talk about all things employment, from finding jobs, holding jobs, building careers, and challenging stigmas. Each podcast will consist of interviews with two visually impaired people who have chosen to travel down unique career paths. Thank you for tuning in. Now let's get to work.
1: So we're here today with Dr. Sean Johnston, who worked for several years as a forensic psychologist. Hello, Dr. Johnston.
2: Hello, Carrie. Uh, a pleasure to speak with you again. Though, no, in fact, I am still working part-time as a forensic psychologist.
1: Oh, that's No right. longer for. Can you, um, can you tell us what a forensic psychologist is?
2: A forensic psychologist is a psychologist who answers questions that lawyers or judges have. Um, that can include judges in the social security system or judges in the criminal or uh, child uh, custody courts. Um, the law, provides for a whole host of places where forensic psychologists are required to provide opinions to judges. For example, what I did primarily was psychological evaluation of criminal defendants. If you, mm, God forbid, Carrie, and I'm sure you wouldn't, uh, firebombed your neighbor's house and your lawyer said, well, Carrie was insane when she did that, The law requires that the court appoint two forensic psychologists or psychiatrists to assess your sanity at the time that uh, you allegedly committed the crime or Mm -hmm. the area in which involved, uh, for the most part, more than any other area, was if somebody is convicted of um, uh, physical child abuse or sexual child abuse, either on the federal court level or on the state level, and I believe all 50 states, a person convicted of something like child molestation cannot be granted probation unless the court gets opinions from reputable, a good thing to know, reputable (laughs) forensic psychiatrists indicating that the defendant is not so dangerous that they need to be removed from the community. I would estimate that in the past, Forty years, I probably it, it's just so hard to know. Uh, but I would guess up of fifteen thousand psychological evaluations on every type of uh, criminal defendant imaginable, from juvenile to adult uh, offenders, including everything from petty thieves to some uh, serial killers and mass murderers. At this point, a few years ago, I stopped doing the criminal evaluations going into jail facilities and prisons, you know, after doing that for 35 years, that was enough. So I'm still doing psychological evaluations um, for the social security administration. In fact, my office is in Oregon city. And what I do is psychological evaluations for the social security administration to determine whether or not somebody suffers from a psychological disability that renders them incapable of working. That's also uh, involved in the judicial process. So any time you have a question, uh, that a lawyer or a judge has a question pertaining to the psychological status of uh, a person, whether it be a social security review or um, uh, a question regarding criminal insanity or competence. Forensic psychologists are there to help.
1: Interesting. What, what got you interested in it?
2: Oh, goodness gracious me. Um, <laughs> it, this may sound a little... I don't know, maybe even a little corny, but uh, I've always been somewhat offended by criminals, by people that, you know, Mm -hmm. molest kids and burglarize your home and steal your car. It seems to me that with life being as difficult as it is, you know, with disease, with war, with death, I mean, how can we have a portion of our fellow species that, you know, spend a great deal of time actively figuring out, trying to figure out how to hurt and steal from their fellow beings. Um, I uh, When I got into forensic psychology, it was in the late 1970s, and there was an extraordinary amount of optimism regarding our ability to rehabilitate criminals in general, as well as sex offenders in particular. And mm-hmm. I was very much involved uh at the forefront of that movement uh, attempting to apply the newest psychological therapies and technologies to rehabilitation i i i've always found it easier to work with offenders i i would not characterize myself as uh how would one say i'm a very empathic person clearly um But it was just too hard for me to work with victims, even though I wanted them to be protected. And I thought, well, if I can't work with victims, certainly working on the offender end of the equation. And I would say that over the 35 years that I was involved, we had the largest uh, privately based sex offender treatment program in Northern California from 1983 until 2008. And I do believe that we did uh, effectuate some degree of rehabilitation among some of our clients, meaning that at least some children uh, wound up not getting abused. So, mm-hmm. of that sort of thing, I'm very proud. Most of what I did, though, was psychological evaluations because I like writing reports, I like figuring out people, I like being able to testify in court and educate judges and juries as to what psychologists can and cannot say reliably about different kinds of offenders. And, you know, that was kind of my most fun thing for a goodly number of years.
1: So, so you're visually impaired. What kind of things did you have to do differently because of your visual impairment?
2: I lost 90% of my uh, vision at the age of eight. Um, So I was rendered legally blind at the age of eight in the third grade. And this is back Mm -hmm. In you know the backwoods of Ontario, Canada, and I literally did things like take telescopes apart to get the little magnifying glasses out of them. So that this is back <laughs> in the 1950s. 1950s, so that I could read even the large text in you know kid textbooks, grammar school textbooks. Um, my family immigrated to the United States. We came to Los Angeles uh, yesterday. It was the 60th anniversary of our wow. immigration from. Area to California. And um, as soon as we got to California, there were programs for blind and mm-hmm. legally blind kids. And those were just so extraordinarily helpful. I will always owe an incredible amount to the taxpayers of the great state of California that paid uh, for my education. With readers, with talking books, with large print books, through a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, and then my PhD in psychology from UCLA back in 77. Um, my vision stayed more or less at about 8, 9, 10% of normal until about 13 years ago. So, 50 years after I lost 90% of my vision, I lost 90% of my vision again. Um my vision at this point is quite minimal. If the lighting is exactly right, I might be able to see a person standing in front of me, but without the lighting being exactly right, um basically, you know, the visual field is something of a blur. I kind of count how lucky I am across the course of the day in terms of how many times I bang my head into something. Today has not been too bad. I've only banged my head twice.
1: <laughs> That's funny um, so so what kinds of things do you feel like you did differently while you were working um you know did you use a cane? did you have a guide dog? How did you get in and I, out of the prisons? the type of stuff.
2: i I always had a registered psychological assistant or two or three or four. Um, as soon as one could uh, was licensed in California, which I was back in 1982, I was able to take on psychological assistance. It is a marvelous pool of slave labor for a licensed psychologist because you have to get to, to take uh, the licensing exam. You have to have 1,500 hours of postdoc experience. I had a pretty dynamic practice, had a good reputation, and I never had any difficulty finding Competent psychological assistance. I never went into a prison by myself. That just wouldn't have been possible, even with you know eight or nine percent vision. Um, mm-hmm. When I took the licensing exam in psychology in California back in the early nineteen eighties, I mean, of course, we talked about this because you know there are so few licensed psychologists uh, in the United States, and I made a commitment to the licensing board. That whenever I did psychological evaluations, I would have a fully sighted person with me. Um, and you know, for adults, that's not so important because what they say is really all- important. We could spend hours talking about uh, my research regarding that uh, what people say is infinitely more important than their body language their facial expressions or how Mm -hmm. much they twitch that sort of thing but the one real exception there is little kids because you can have a seven-year-old who says the most ridiculous and outrageous things you know they've been abused by martians and you know as a blind psychologist i couldn't see the big smile on that little cherubic face you know indicating Mm -hmm. they were pulling my leg so Um, And there have been times when I've been in jail and prison settings uh, where um, some of my questions, and they can be innocuous questions, though sometimes my questions were a little more confrontive or probative, where the defendant begins to get a little bit wound up. And uh, thanks to the assistance of one of my excellent psychological uh, residents, um, my nose was missed by the swinging fist of the aggravated wow. uh, inmate that wanted to take a pop at me. So, um, I mean, I've never been able to drive, so my psychological assistants, you know, they, they used to carry my inkblots, drive me around, help me analyze data. Um, as a Now, if you're a blind psychologist who's a therapist, you know, it, it's going to be a different situation. You do not need... Uh, assistance in that situation but if you're a blind forensic psychologist who's going to court going to uh, county jails or juvenile halls hither and thither you know there's no way in the practical world that you can do without uh, psychological assistance
1: so so were you ever uh, questioned by people because of your visual impairment thinking you weren't competent in your god job? yes
2: oh god <laughs> yes One of the things, like, if you testify in a court trial, um, no matter which side you're on, you can count on 100% of the time there being at least half of the attorneys in the courtroom who want to appear you, who want to try to make you appear to be either incompetent or, you know, a whore. So, Um, And I've had both uh, prosecutors and defense attorneys say things like, well, Dr. Johnston, how can a blind person do a psychological evaluation, which, of course, I was very happy to explain. Um, For what it's worth, I don't mean to toot my horn too much here, but I would say that we had one of the most active practices in Northern California for uh, 25 years, and uh, our practice was somewhat unusual in that we were as often uh, hired by prosecutors as defense attorneys. Ours was an unusual practice where because of my commitment to honesty, uh, we were respected uh, on both sides. So um, that's that's something that you've got to work really hard for as a forensic psychologist because it's easy to get pulled into being labeled a defense or a uh, prosecution-oriented doctor. And I uh, worked very hard to keep that from being the case.
1: Interesting. Um, On your bio you gave me, you also mentioned that you've taught at colleges. What kind of things have you taught?
2: Well, I, I've taught at uh, UCLA, UC Davis, University of San Francisco, Cal State University, Sacramento, Cal State University, Northridge, Oregon State University, Portland State University for four or five jobs, four or five years, which some people have, you know, um, uh, suggested I had a hard time keeping a job. My my major <laughs> thing was always my practice. So I taught on the side, primarily for fun, primarily for enjoyment and uh You know, I really like being on university campuses and checking out their um, salad bars and burger sands and just being with, you know, young students. It's uh, um, mostly what I've taught has been social psychology and abnormal psychology. During my last five years of teaching, I've been taught now for three three or four years, um, I was asked to design the first undergraduate course in forensic psychology uh, for the Oregon State University system, which I did. It was a very, very popular course for a number of years. And uh, so, primarily abnormal psychology, social psychology, some courses in statistics and experimental psychology, but most recently just forensic psychology.
1: So, was there anything you did differently being a visually impaired professor versus your sighted counterparts?
2: Well, I always had a a teaching assistant um, who I had, you know, do the hard work. I would get up and give the lectures, which, of course, was fun. And they would be the ones who would grade the exams. I don't think there is a a lot I did different. I did rely... you know, there were places where I had the option of multiple choice exams versus uh, more of an emphasis on essay exams. Mm-hmm. And to be candid, comp- administering multiple choice exams certainly involves less work on behalf of the professor. At the same time, if one does hope to go on to um, graduate school in psychology, the graduate records exam, that's mm-hmm. a multiple choice Uh, The psychology licensing exam is a 200-item-long multiple-choice exam, which has both breadth and depth, which is extraordinary. So knowing how to take multiple-choice exams is an incredibly important skill. So I may have gone in that direction a little bit more. I mean, I often enjoyed getting essays and, uh, and some of the more advanced classes would, but I don't think uh, actually, it, I mean, you know, in classes, I would say, you know, if you're in the back of the class, you raise your hand, the blood is going to drain out of your hand and it's going to fall off before I see it. So <laughs> I would ask, to, uh, you know, respectfully interrupt me. And mm-hmm. I was always I always really enjoyed the interaction. I've had some professors who did not seem to uh, enjoy it, inter- exchange with students as much. But so I invited students to, you know, break in if they were piqued by some point or wanted, uh, you know, to pursue it more.
1: Interesting. I always thought it would be good too if you had students submit essays electronically, then you could use adaptive. You know, computer software like JAWS to to review them and that type of stuff.
2: A lot of that stuff is so new. I mean, I taught my first uh, college class at UCLA back in 1977 or 1978. Mm-hmm. Um, I I was, you know, I I was blessed with very competent assistants, very competent secretaries. Um, I only got into window Eyes maybe 20 years ago now. So Uh it's only been in maybe the past 15 or 20 years that I've really gotten into that technology, for which I feel immensely grateful.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's awesome that you had such great assistance. Um, So so what's one of the, you know, you mentioned um, almost getting hit by somebody. What's one of the uh, craziest um, times that you've had working over the years?
2: I was in a little interview room uh, at the Yolo County Jail, 1986. And I asked this one uh, apparently psychotic defendant, you know, I, where were you born who raised you what about your mother and when I asked him about his mother he completely freaked out jumped up uh hit the light switch my assistant and I were left in the dark with this young psychotic defendant screaming and banging on the walls and the duty sergeant opens the door and says are you kids having fun I, I thought <laughs> well I, yeah that that's that,
1: kind of different <laughs>
2: I I have one of the things that, you know, I've been on death row at San Quentin maybe 15 to 20 times and um, going to death row on San Quentin is quite an experience. One of the crazy things about it is, you know, there's a metal detector here. We've got to take off your shoes, take off your belt, and then 12 feet down the way there's another metal detector. So I never really enjoyed going to death row on San Quentin that much, but it was certainly a kind of a, Solemn experience, if you will.
1: Yeah, yeah. I imagine that would be different um, going through all those protection statuses and stuff. So, what mm. kind of advice would you give? You know, a young, you know, visually impaired student interested in pursuing a career in in psychology.
2: Well i read just a couple weeks ago that only 85 percent of blind americans are employed and i thought what a wretched loss to the country and uh, perhaps to many of those folks i would say that with regard to becoming a a psychologist i've had a blind friend who is a chiropractor i've had a blind Mm -hmm. friend who is a very gifted uh, bicycle repair guy I've had uh, blind friends who were therapists, uh, lawyers. Um I I say um kind of thinking about this since you, you know, suggested we do this interview and I thought that, you know, uh there are three things that I would identify as really important, safety, satisfaction and service. Um I think you know, um, with my vision now, walking around you know, the streets of Portland or even Olympia, I, I mean, by myself, is like taking my life in my hands. So the, the, there, there are issues of safety in choosing what kind of work you want to go for that I think mm-hmm. are unique uh, to those of us with these, um, you know, visual handicaps. But maybe the most important thing, of course, is satisfaction. I think that you have to go for what you enjoy doing in fact i would say that overwhelmingly you know that is the important thing something you like um because then it doesn't feel like work now It's not just something you like. I think it's also playing to your strong suit. My son, for example, he got into University of California, Santa Barbara a number of years ago. He got into their marine biology program because he wanted to swim with the dolphins, which would have been wonderful. But then he discovered, well, you got to take a year of chemistry, a year of biochemistry, and then a year of molecular biochemistry. (laughs) He thought, well, now, I've always liked psychology, too. Uh, So the thing was, both were things he liked, but one was something where it just came to him so satisfaction playing to your strongest suit with regard to something you're really interested in and i think uh i don't mean to be too corny here but i think the service thing is really important you know whether you're a blind parent uh raising kids or writing poetry uh, whether you're a forensic psychologist or a chiropractor no matter what you do um I I I think you know that with regard to the three sci-fi fantasy books I've written in the past year, that my current mission in life is to introduce a blind hero into popular literature. And part of the idea there is that, you know, as a blind kid back in, you know, the boonie docks of Ontario, I realized very young in life, I was never going to be a brain surgeon. I was never going to be an archery champion. Uh, I was never going to be a jet fighter pilot, but I still wanted to do heroic stuff. I can't speak for members of your gender with the kind of hopeful intuition and expertise I might have with regard to males. But I do think that most of us males, want to do things that are heroic and contribute. So I think this business about service um, is really important. I think that particularly um, for someone who wants to be a blind professional, it's, you know, having good friends, having good relationships with colleagues. I, I think that the quality of our interpersonal relationships is just, so important. I mean, I think it's important for all of us to have good friends and loving relationships in our life. But, you know, given the reality of the kind of physical dependence that a blind person is going to have on another person just for crossing the street, I mean, I think, you know, maybe this is just because I am a kind of gregarious type, but I just think that making sure that um, we're a good friend is is critically important. So, these are some thoughts I've had on it, but, you know, ultimately the bottom line is go for what turns you on and, you know, work hard. I mean, I think it was Edison. who said 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration. I mean, getting into graduate school at UCLA was not, uh, easy. I mean, when I was an undergraduate in psychology, um, I basically attempted to memorize the textbooks. I mean, I, I uh, there was one night back in the nineteen late 1960s, and a friend says, Sean, I've got tickets to the um, you know Rolling Stones concert uh, tonight, and there's going to be a party with the um, Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders after. And I said, well, I've got a midterm tomorrow. I've got to study. Now, this is not completely true. I may be embellishing just a t- it, sure, but you know, one does have to sacrifice one if mm-hmm. one wants to achieve something significant. Anything of value is going to require some real effort and time.
1: Yeah, it really does. So, um, briefly, we just a couple more minutes. You mentioned your books, um, which are very inter- very intriguing. They're, I've read them; they're very very nicely done. Um, and how how much of your you know how much of your career has put in? Have you put into your books?
2: Quite a lot. You'll notice that the Blind Detective, the the, the three sci-fi fantasy books, uh, are subtitled Peter Straw Third Eye. Um, uh, Peter Straw is a blind detective whose office is in Toronto, Canada. And curiously, I can't really explain how this happened, but Peter Straw has somehow uh, assimilated all of my knowledge regarding criminals and how they lie, the kind of lies they tell. One of the things that... very much surprised me as a forensic psychologist, especially thinking of myself as kind of a blind kid from the backwoods of Canada. Was after I testified once in uh, Auburn, in Placer County, and the judge leans over and says, "Sean," he says, "Boy, you've got a lot of street knowledge. You, 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 you see through these guys." And I thought, "What street knowledge? I mean, I've got street knowledge, which I really didn't think I did, but." Uh, In addition to Peter Straw's uncanny ability to uh, see through the lies of criminals and deceitful people, the last series of articles we published in our experience as a research psychologist dealt with how you can detect deception in criminal offenders, again, not on the basis of body language, but on the basis of um, what they say, how they say it. In fact, if you Google me, Shauna Adair Johnston, um, you'll see that a number of the articles that pop up uh, involve my research on how to catch liars in psychological evaluations, so my blind hero detective, Peter Straw, has um, um I, I when I was a high school kid, uh friends would say, "You know, Sean, there's going to be a really great party this Friday night, just out of town, of course, it was a ten mile walk, and after having friends said, "Well, I'll be by eight o'clock, uh, pick you up Friday night," and they never showed up uh, for me at least for this you know, blind teenager, uh, in, well, in the United States, now we are, um, Mm -hmm. it became critically important to know who was scamming me, to know Mm -hmm. who I could trust. And one of the things I discovered in my work as a forensic psychologist Um, And one of the things that Peter Straw, the blind detective, is also quite aware of is that there are ways people say things. There are things that people say that give clues as to whether or not they're telling you the truth or they're, you know, mm, uh, blowing smoke up your white cane. So um, that is... uh, Probably the primary skill. In, in the Peter Straw books, um, Watson, remember this takes, takes 60 years in the future. So between um, um, nanotechnology and the advances in uh, neurosurgery, there are three intellectually augmented species, dogs, chimps, and porpoises. A, a dog has about the intellectual capability of a 12, 13-year-old kid, which is not bad, which is not bad. Mm-hmm. So Peter Straws. Uh, guide dog is Watson, appropriately named, who is almost a Straw's um, walking uh, lie detector. And they've um, worked out a system whereby, you know, Watson, through his extraordinary sense of smell, and uh, Peter Straw, through his tremendous ability to listen. And if there's anything I would say, you know, regarding whatever uh, professional route or job route, vocational route a blind person Mm -hmm. might want to take. My God, the listening, hearing people is just so important. There's research that indicates that about 50% of the brain is associated with the visual sense. Now, I do not believe that blind people um, somehow are able to hear better, you know, hear more acutely Mm -hmm. than sighted people. But I think that it behooves any blind person who wants to be successful doing anything to cultivate that skill of hearing, of listening, and listening very carefully. And uh, so that's probably you know that's probably the thing for which there has been the greatest transference between my experience as a forensic psychologist, and you know some of the business about criminals, because the you know the bad guys in my books, you know, they're multifaceted. Um, there are they're none of the bad guys that are exclusively evil, with the exception of the one character in Demons, the Great White North and the Blind Detective. There is a unmitigatedly evil character in that book, but I
0: won't say <laughs> more.
1: So um, we're about out of time here. Um, I, I would like to say with the listening, I think um, being visually impaired myself, you know, I tell people I just learned to pay more attention to, to my hearing because people think, yeah, you have supersonic hearing. No, we just pay more attention. <laughs> so,
0: so
2: Dr. go ahead. Yes, you're absolutely right.
1: Yeah. So, well, <clears throat> thank you, Dr. Johnston, for your time. And um, thank you for joining us on our employment podcast.
2: Carrie, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me.
1: Thank you. Next up, I think uh, our other employment person, committee member, Peter Altul, is going to do an interview. Peter?
3: Yeah. Can you hear me? We can. Good. Is Rebecca on? uh, I am. Ah, okay. Then we're ready to roll. Uh, Welcome again to this podcast, and I'm delighted to have the opportunity to interview Rebecca Bridges, very talented uh, 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 individual. And we'll learn a little about her professional background. So Rebecca, can you start by sort of giving a, just a broad overview of your employment history?
4: Um, yes. So, wow. I have been in the working world for a long time now. Um, uh, let's see. I, my first job was actually, so pre, pre-college, um, I worked in, uh, food services around the age of 14. Um, and so that was, you know, an interesting, uh, job for a blind person. I wasn't necessarily flipping burgers. I was, you know, operating in a cash register and it was an adaptive environment. So it was at a, um, school for the blind, but I was very enterprising. I was very interested in making money. So I got a job as soon as I could get one. And um, so I did that uh, for some time. I also um, dabbled around in teaching some music lessons. Uh, When I was in high school, I was a musician. So I did a little bit of that for money. Um, Once I got into... You know, college, I had some, you know, odds and ends uh jobs throughout, you know, throughout my college. I was a a mentor through like sort of like a work study type program at my university. Um and I I felt like it was very important to get as much work experience um as I could uh before before I got out of college. So I had a number of um internships as well while I was in college to prepare me for the working world. Um, in terms of my sort of, uh, big kid jobs, um, once I graduated college, I graduated without a job. Um, I, and then about maybe, I think it was a day after I got a, um, after I graduated, I got a call from someone at, um, National, um, National Industries for the Blind who said, oh, I saw that we went to the same, uh, college and, uh, we're looking to hire some folks and I'd like to talk to you. So it ended up that two weeks later, I was in a car driving all my stuff with my parents out to Washington DC, uh, to come and, uh, work for NIB. I was there for, uh, I started out actually as a paid, as a paid intern, uh, because they didn't have a specific position at the time. So I, kind of jumped in for a few months. I got hired on full-time uh, about four months later. So I was there for about six years. Um, while I was at NIB, I got a master's degree in organization development and knowledge management, and we can certainly talk more about that. But that really piqued my interest in consulting. I was very interested in uh, you know, I, I have a strong belief that, you know, who makes up organizations? People make up organizations. And uh, people are very fascinating. Uh, they can make it go well and make it also go not so well. Uh, but they are your, an organization's greatest asset. Um, so I got very much interested in that. And uh, so after I received my master's, I started interviewing for jobs and ended up in the uh, management consulting field. Um, I so I left NIB uh, after six, about six and a half years and uh, spent seven years at a uh, management consulting firm called FMP Consulting, um, and then, in I guess almost three years ago now, I left there and joined the Passiello Group as a senior project manager. And the Passiello Group uh, is essentially an accessible Accessibility, or I kind of an IT consulting firm that that uh, deals with accessibility consulting. That's
3: uh, very impressive, and thank you for sharing all that. So, I want to go back to your education. Um, Apart from giving you those internships and uh, that first job you have when you were 14 years old, um, how did the education prepare you for the work world, and maybe how the education not so well prepare you for the work world?
4: That is an excellent question. Um, I think that, you know, I always felt like education was just, um, you know, I, I remember, you know, as a, a very young person, even in middle school, you know, my mom saying, okay, you're going to go to college, like, that's the end of it, that, that there's no ifs, ands, or buts. My mom didn't go right away. So she was very, she felt she was a strong proponent of both my brother and me, uh, you know, going to college, getting an education. So it was super, super important uh, to she and my dad. So it was really not an option that I was going to, you know, there were, there were no other options for me. I had to go get an education. And I will say that, you know, there's a lot that you learn um, through your education, you know, about discipline. You know, it, it can be tedious. Uh, you learn a lot about life and you learn a lot about other people. Um, I don't know though, you know, if I'm being honest, again, I think it's, it's the discipline part of education. It's kind of dr- I sort of found it to be, you know, there were some, some classes you obviously like more than others and, but some of it can be a little bit drudgery and tedious. And, um, so I felt like I wasn't really prepared for, you know, when I, I went to one of the best, uh, liberal arts schools in the country, or at least they thought of themselves that way. Um, and I think the mindset coming out is that, well, you have a degree from, you know, DePaul University. You're going to go places and get a great job and get it all done and shouldn't be a problem because you've got, you know, this name on your, your resume. And And I don't think that's necessarily true. I think that, um, you know, what I learned was the most valuable thing I, I could do for myself was... Uh, to get work experience while I was in college. And that served me incredibly, incredibly well um, when I was uh, in my job search uh, and kind of knowing the types of things I liked, the types of things I didn't like. Um, And in just getting my name out there and networking, um, I I know, you know, blind and sighted, disabled, not disabled, uh, the people I know who had internships in college uh, were a lot more successful in finding employment, uh, more quickly than those who did not. So
3: I'm curious about your internship experiences. Um, how supportive were your college administrators in helping you land those internship experiences? And how did you deal with the, um, uh, accommodations that you might or might not need, you know, to get those, uh, internship experiences under your belt?
4: You know, um, I would say it was a mixed bag. So I, um, well, first of all, I had wonderful internship experiences all of all of my experiences were very, very good. Um, uh, i so again, uh, DuPont, where I went to school, they were a proponent of internships, and they pushed it. They talked about it all the time and wanted to get you out there. Um so I had you know one of my internships was for you know because I was My undergrad is in music and communication. So it's like you go to school for that thing you study for for years and your parents spend a lot of money on your education for music. But then, you know, so I I got you know scholarships to do that. But then there's like, oh, I need to be able to get a, you know, quote unquote, real job when I'm done. Um, So I got the communication aspect as well. Um, So. My first internship was for a chamber music society. So I was doing like PR and communications for them. And I found that internship through my piano teacher um, in college. Um, so that was handy. Um, another internship I did was through um, actually a member of ACB uh, of Indiana, uh, Don Coors. He uh, knew some folks that worked in a senator's office. So I did, um, we had these things called J terms or winter terms, um, between semesters. And so I spent, uh, some time working for a Senator out here in, in, uh, in Washington, DC. And, um, that was a cool experience because, so I guess, so my first internship, the chamber music society was, you know, remote, you sort of do it from your house. No big deal. I didn't need any real special accommodations for that. Um, in the Senate office, What was very cool is, I think, just by nature of, you know, me being a blind person. um, So I brought my own software. I didn't ask them for anything. I brought my own JAWS and installed it. I just said, I need to, you know, put it on this computer. Fine, fine. Um, I did all myself. Um, But what was cool, you know, a lot of interns in Senate offices and in Congress, you know, they read mail and stuff like that. But obviously, I couldn't do that. So they're just like, hey, Rebecca, let's go to a hearing. So I got to do cool stuff where you know my my other my friends were sort of sitting around answering phones, um, which I did some of that too. I'm not trying to brag, but <laughs> I sort of that's where I think my blindness sort of was an advantage uh, in that environment. Um, and then I had another internship, um, actually for the American Council of the Blind. Um, so I I knew I really liked the DC area and I wanted to be uh out here and so i i got that internship obviously accommodations and such weren't an issue uh in that environment um and uh you know they got me set up with some o and i basically had 2 hours of O&M and then i was off on my own uh in the big city <laughs> which which was quite uh quite an exciting experience when you're you know 20 years old uh and a little overwhelming at times but it was pretty cool and um, and then Uh, NIB obviously was my other internship. So again, accommodations, uh, weren't a a huge, a huge issue there. So
3: uh, big, big, big kid jobs after you graduated from college. Um, you've had three major jobs. Can you sort of briefly sort of talk about a typical day and all three of those jobs, what, what kinds of things you do, the challenges you experience, what you like about the jobs, just a general, overview about those jobs.
4: Yeah. So when I was at NIB, um, they brought me in to support their services department. Um, And, you know, NIB, if you know anything about them, they are part of the Ability One program, which is a federal purchasing program that has, that really has like set aside contracts uh, to employ people who are blind or have other disabilities in a variety of different areas. So they're most known, I think, for sort of product stuff. But they, um, when I started, they were really, really trying to build up their services uh, sector. So things like, you know, contact centers, IT help desks, uh, contract uh, support positions in, you know, federal in acquisition. Um, the, you know, there's warehousing and distribution type uh, opportunities. So, so that was. Um, So I guess a typical day in that environment, it really varied, but some of the things that I got to do while I was there uh, was, you know, I actually helped start up a couple of uh, pretty significant contracts. So I worked um, alongside these other companies that we would partner with um, to, to put people who are blind in different jobs. So Uh, other, you know, federal contractors, or I think one of them was like a toll, toll bridge, uh, you know, like easy pass type place. So I I traveled to and from Richardson, Texas, multiple times (laughs) to assist uh, them in onboarding, interviewing uh, people who are blind to fill positions and, uh, you know, getting them all set up in their job. And so that was a a really rewarding experience, um, just being able to to see to see that happen and come to life, and and see people really, you know, living out and being able to to find you know meaningful employment that that they enjoy doing, and and educating people in the process about you know the abilities and you know capabilities of of people who are blind. So that was that was a cool experience. Um, you know, while I was there, again, I fell in love with the idea of you know learning more about human capital and people and organizations, and so that's where I got my master's and then I, I landed a job through uh, through my network, actually uh, just my, my social network, or, you know, I guess professional network to some extent um, where I was the first uh, blind person that this company had ever hired. And um, they, they said so, and they said, you know, we really, we want to learn. And so, you know, tell us what, what we can do. So, Um, A typical day there, again, it really varied. So while I was there, um, I think one of the most rewarding things I did there was, um, so I did anything from writing a strategic plan for an organization. uh, So, you know, doing a whole series of interviews and then building out objectives. And and that's kind of a a slog. I didn't love the strategic planning stuff. But um, I built, I helped to, Build a leadership development program, a career development program for uh, for the VA. While I was there, and that was a, a really neat experience. So to be able to actually build this online portal where people can go to learn about jobs and careers in the VA, and they can get networked, and they can, you know, check do assessments to find uh, careers and, and things that are suitable for them. So that's both people who are new to the VA as well as people who are already in the VA and wanted to advance their careers. So I really, I got to do a lot of really interesting things. I got to talk to people at all levels of organizations. So from C-level executives, you know, all the way down to, you know, somebody answering the phone. Like I got to, to travel and do, you know, as part of, you know, building out this program, we would do workshops to understand what the different roles were across the VA and how they all fit together and what kind of skills and knowledge and abilities you had to have in order to, you know, we built out profiles for the various career opportunities. So we got to, you know, I, I sat and, you know, talked to doctors. I talked to, you know, people who work in a cemetery, uh, you know, it really, really varied. And that was just a, an incredible experience uh, to be able to, to, to be a part of that. And then in my current job um, at the Paciello Group, so I I manage a, I work with a team of engineers uh, who are across in, uh, I guess they're all across, you know, the US, Canada, and uh, the UK. And um, we support our clients to help them uh, make their digital assets accessible. So anything from uh, mobile apps that they're building, uh, to websites, uh, things like that. Even uh, we're also doing a lot of you know some kiosk work now uh, with kiosk with JAWS and things like that. So um, I think one of the the rewarding parts of my job is you know seeing uh, clients who are really motivated and interested in uh, improving their products because it helps everyone. I mean, my clients are people in you know they're companies that provide educational products. They're banker, you know, people in banking. Um, they really vary. So it's, it is neat, uh, you know, to be able to see uh, things improving and people really being interested in making a difference. And, but I think, you know, that that's a slow process. It it takes a long time to see uh, change in a lot of these cases, but I really enjoy the team of people I work with. They're a, a super passionate group of people. They're highly, highly talented. They're very good at what they do. And I just, I enjoy You know, working alongside my colleagues from, you know, all over the place and, you know, connecting with them. So,
3: totally awesome. I have one more major question to ask you. uh, And that is uh, I understand that you're married and have two kids. Is that correct?
4: Uh, I do. I have two boys.
3: That's totally awesome. How old are they?
4: They are six years old and uh, 10 and a half months.
3: Wow. So, uh, I noticed that you talked about when you're working for National Industries for the Blind you also had also got your master's in organizational development or whatever the official title was. Mm -hmm. So that, given, uh, you know, one of the things we hear is it takes longer for us blind people to get stuff done sometimes, maybe even often. How did you, how did you find balance all those things to be able to both get a degree and do the work you did at NIB? And how do you find the time to parent (laughs) while doing the complicated work that you're doing now?
4: (laughs) That's a great question. Well, uh, I will say, so when I was getting my master's degree, um, I, I didn't have kids. So that means that was, yes. um, that was a lot easier. Um, so I was in the great thing about my program is it was an executive format program, which what that means is we didn't have classes, you know, in the afternoons, it wasn't during the day, it was Friday nights and Saturdays. So I had no weekends. That's how I did it. Right. Um, right. <laughs> I, okay. I, um, and then. I would, I also adjusted my schedule while at NIB where I could, I worked like really long days. You know, I do like, you know, nine, 10 hour days for a couple of weeks and then have a day off like every other Friday, mm-hmm. which was great. Cause I could, you know, finish my papers we had, I mean, oh my gosh, we had so much writing in my master's oh my program. Goodness. It was oh, so bad. Yeah. Um, it's, <laughs> so, um, so I that's that's really how I did. It. I went to school at night on the weekends, and um, I, I had that every other Friday where I would just like get up at five in the morning and drink lots of coffee and write papers. Um, <laughs> and I think in terms of today, I mean we're all we're all juggling this craziness in 2020. Like I, um, because because I have the fortune of you know we all you know this the Passiello group job was a remote job to begin with. Um, so we all worked from home to begin like pre-pandemic. So um, that it wasn't, a, I didn't have to go through any adjustment to be at home. I think the biggest adjustment has been, you know, I just have to, I might get up a little earlier so I can be available to my UK people, like before my kids get up, do a little bit of work and then they get up and I get them ready and, and going. And then I'm also, I'm homeschooling my son, um, my six-year-old. So I send the baby to daycare and we homeschool the great thing about homeschooling and it's serious homeschool. It's not like virtual school at home. It's we're doing this. Like it's, I picked the curriculum and I'm doing it. Um, And when you homeschool, it only really takes one and a half to two hours for a kid, my son's age for first grader to, to do what you need to do so we can get it all done in a more flexible way. Um, And so I can just kind of flex that around work it around in my work schedule. Is it easy? No. Um does does he love it all the time? Oh no. Um <laughs> is it, you know, but but we, you know, we get it done. So
3: So um uh, we have um uh, we, we haven't talked a lot about technology. Uh, how do you how does technology fit into all of this?
4: Well, funny you should ask. So I mean, technology has been you know, it's technology is such a it has really leveled the playing field, I think, for a lot of jobs. But as you know, and as I know, especially in the one of the things that motivated me to go work for the Paciello group was um, the fact that, that, you know, I was running into some, you know, I was encountering or and seeing other people encounter some accessibility barriers, you know, in my previous job. Um, And it wasn't anything that was keeping me from like, I wasn't in danger of losing my job or anything like that. But it was just, a frustrating thing. Like you, you'd when we're building a product for a client and I'm asking the vendor, well, uh, is your product 508 compliant? And are, are you going to do that? And when they say, well, we just don't care about that. Well, mm-hmm. that doesn't make me very happy. Like you have no idea who you're talking to. You're talking to a blind person. Um, but <laughs> so that really honked me off. And just seeing more stuff like that, I, I wanted to be a part of the solution and try to help. So I was, I was motivated to, to go do that. So I think technology is great when it works. Um, but there are still significant barriers out there, um, that, that are, you know, to some extent, maybe keep making, you know, keeping people from, you know, either, either real or perceived, uh, keeping folks from, you know, getting where, where they want to go.
3: And in the last minute or so, um, what advice would you give to somebody, you know, trying to break into the job market or change jobs? What what do you think the the the, the critical skills or what advice do you have for folks in 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 that position?
4: Well, I, I think a few things. Um, one of one of the really important things is um, the attitude that you have is very important. Um, you know, when I think about how I view employment and and what it's, you know, I recognize that employment opportunity, you know, it could be more challenging for someone with a disability, but we have to, we have to be positive and we have to act like we're supposed to, like, like we belong. You know what I'm saying? Like, attitude is incredibly important. So show up and, and be ready and be, you know, be confident, have a positive attitude. Don't go into it thinking well, there's no way this is going to happen, or I'm going to be denied, or I'm going to, I can't do that. Like attitude is so important, having a positive attitude, Um, making sure you're ready for the opportunity. So make sure you have the skills that you need. Do you, do you need to brush up on your computer skills? And I spent a lot of time um, as I was preparing, you know, finishing up my master's and preparing to, for my next job, you know, spent i spent a lot of time you know playing with powerpoint for instance at the time you know back in 2010 like mm-hmm. trying to really upskill and doing it on my own time figuring out how how things work um uh you know, fi- figuring out, you know, I, I spent a lot of time trying to to upskill in certain areas where I knew I needed to be stronger and be more independent. Because when you're the only blind person working in a consulting firm, you don't have an admin to, like, make sure your documents are formatted correctly, right? So so being ready for, you know, making sure you have the requisite skills and being ready to answer questions in an interview about how you do manage things, because sometimes when someone asks you a question about your technology, you don't, I mean, you don't want to go into, well, you know, being defensive or, or, you know, like you, you might be thinking that in your head, but a lot of people are really genuinely asking from a place of, of not understanding and wanting to learn. I definitely found that to be the case uh, with my second job at, at P Consulting, where they were legitimately interested in, well, so I'm, I'm curious about your technology and how does it work um, and how are you able to, to do that? And there's, you know, in, in my mind is thinking like, oh no, now this is their chance to weed me out and they can hire somebody else. But then I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to answer it and I'm going to, I'm ready for it. I'm going to, I'm going to go get it. And that's, I think that's what you have to do. And then, then the final thing is uh, the importance of Networking cannot be um, overstated. So I, I didn't get my jobs because I sat and you know went on Indeed and poked around. Um, I got jobs that I the jobs that I have because of my of the network that I uh, built in terms of just knowing who's out there and you know hey I'd like to go to dinner and talk to you about what you do. Um, I'd like to. You know, my friend uh, came over and said, "Oh, my my husband knows this lady that works for this boutique consulting firm called f and p. And you know I know you're looking to get into that world. Maybe you should talk to her, I'll introduce you. And then, you know I take her out for coffee and we we talk. And so really, you know establishing those connections and and being ready to to take advantage. And then for anybody that's entering the workforce, again, internships are so critically important, paid or unpaid. It doesn't matter. Like just getting that experience, figuring out what you like, what you don't like, getting in front of people and having having things to put on your resume. and again, those connections uh, that you might need or or want later down the road. Uh, you know that might be a huge help in in landing your next job or a couple jobs from now. So
3: thank you so much, Rebecca, for your time and taking time out of your busy schedule. Send our greetings to your kids and and your husband, <laughs> Eric. And uh, and thanks for joining us.
4: I will. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun.
0: You've been listening to Let's Get to Work, a podcast from the Employment Committee at the American Council of the Blind. Have questions, episode ideas, or feedback? Feel free to email Brooke Josted, the committee chair at B-R-O-O-K-E underscore J-O-S-T-A-D at comcast.net. Until next time, work it.